0: Hello and welcome to the Fidelity ETF Exchange, powered by Fidelity Connects. Fidelity Connects was proudly ranked the number one podcast by Canadian financial advisors in the 2022 Enveronics Advisor Digital Experience Study. On today's episode, host Etienne Janka Bouchard is joined by Cameron Chamberlain. Cam, a portfolio strategist here at Fidelity Canada, has joined Etienne before and is back today to share his insights on everything he's seen so far in 2022 from a portfolio strategy perspective. Cam's role focuses on optimizing diversification and analyzing risk within a portfolio, and considering the year we've had so far, there is a lot to talk about. Enjoy. This podcast was recorded on July 28, 2022. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fidelity ETF Exchange. I'm your host, Etienne Jean-Cabouchard, a.k.a. EJB, and I'm very glad to be back behind the mic. We're doing a little, you know more episodes in a shorter time frame, and it's, it's it's good to get back in the swing of things, talk about markets albeit we're in the middle of summer, it feels like there's headlines that are you know truly impactful on, on portfolios right now. And today, I don't think we could have a better guest to talk about kind of the ramifications of some of the moves we've seen in markets, whether that be rising rates, the impact of inflation, factor biases, risk on fixed income sides. He can do it all. And that man is Cameron Chamberlain. Cam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for coming back. Yes, yeah, this is the second time now in a row. So our last episode, we actually had Andrew Klee on. That was his second time. You're on your second time. So we're, we're creating this pool of recurring guests now, which is great. Uh and, and also fun because I think our audience then can get to know, you know, yourself and, and some of these other recurring guests and truly understand the value that you guys bring to Fidelity and to our advisor base as well as, you know, investors in general through this. Podcast, which is you know targeted to to both those audiences, so just very briefly, I'll, I'll give you you know quick intro, and I'm, I I might hope I don't mess anything up, but Cam's been in fidelity for quite a while now. More importantly, in the role that you're in now, it's already been a few years. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, right, Cam? Yeah, that's right. So a few years now as a portfolio strategist, uh, an expert in analyzing the various risks that certain portfolio faces, looking at how we can optimize diversification, stress testing. And powered by some of the tools that you and your team have developed here at Fidelity. So really, uh, uh, lots of knowledge that's gathered in conversations with advisors. And the objective for today is to kind of just pick your brain on what you've been hearing, what you've been seeing, you know, just tidbits on events in, the, in markets in general. Also, before we get into that conversation, though, Cam, just a quick, quick, quick recap on what we did last time. That was with Andrew Klee. Like I mentioned, we did the quarterly ETF industry recap in which we talked about some of those headlines that I kind of already mentioned. But, you know, uh, for example, value, uh, you know, kind of giving way a little bit back towards quality growth in Q2. We saw credit spreads widen a little bit, really tough environment for bonds just in general. Uh, we saw interest rate hikes finally come into play and not just anticipations of rate hikes. Uh, we also talked about flows, uh, right? So what's been popular in the ETF industry. Uh, we also saw, you know, in June, the first month of net outflows in three years in the Canadian ETF industry. So quite a uh, a change in momentum as markets were were definitely not obviously ideal from a performance standpoint. So let's get started. Cam, I know I know you've been on the show before, and I think we had the time to kind of discuss what a day in the life of Cam- of Cameron Chamber looks like. But I think it's worth it, worth it to do it again. I, I kind of gave a brief overview there, but I'd love it if you could go into a bit more detail on what you and your team do on a daily basis.
2: Absolutely, and happy to do so. So I spend my day uh, speaking to financial advisors uh, across Canada about investment portfolios, trying to understand the goals that their investors have, how they're helping them achieve those goals, and really taking a look at their portfolios and, and making sure that they're aware of the biases or gaps that they have, that they're wanted and not unwanted. And if for any reason that there is something that surprises them about their portfolio that we're able to point out or highlight, then we can have conversations about all the possible ways they could try to address those challenges to make sure that the portfolios are going to behave as they expect them to in a whole host of different market environments and really just trying to get a better grasp of the types of questions that they're receiving from investors, the types of concerns that they have about the market and making sure portfolios are appropriately structured to meet all of those different challenges day to day. No, that's great. And I think one of the things you mentioned there
1: that, which is really interesting and and kind of captivating is, you know, trying to identify biases that might exist either by design or just not by design. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of the value comes in is sometimes you, you know, you, you go through a portfolio and say, you know, Oh, there might be a tilt towards something that we didn't even expect. Uh, whether that be, you know, just because of the name of a given fund or, you know, something like that, or exposure to certain stocks that tend to correlate maybe a bit stronger than than we would have been anticipated. And yeah, no, I, I find that quite, quite interesting. And I'm sure it happens quite often, right? Like that's something that, that it, more
2: often than not, there's stuff that we kind of uncover when opening the hood, right? Yeah, there's usually a little something at the very least. Uh, I think the goal and the dream is that you take a look at your portfolio and new platforms and think about it in different ways, get asked tough questions, and you know, everything looks exactly as you expect it to. The reality is that's not usually exactly the case. And there are at times, you know, the biases that come through, maybe you actually, you know, you might love energy. You might have a whole bunch of different energy names, ETFs, funds in your portfolio. You may not quite understand how much additional volatility that drives in most market environments. So it works well well, of course, maybe energy as a sector is outperforming, but what happens if you hit a bump in the road and that, that outperformance turns into underperformance? So it's very easy at times to think about building portfolios from a, just a waiting perspective and thinking about, okay, I want a 20% allocation to a, a given part of the market. But to some extent, if you, that 20% allocation is 50% of the risk in your portfolio, then really it's gonna have a much greater than maybe desired impact which is fantastic in an environment where you're right, but the challenge is, of course, that environment where you're wrong, and those types of biases can be found in portfolios for a whole host of different reasons.
1: Great, yeah, no, that's uh, that. It really is
2: quite interesting, and
1: it, it makes me think also is that you know you're talking about that diversification aspect where it's you know you, you want to find if there are any biases you want to identify them so you can address it from a diversification standpoint. Have you found, and maybe this is just you know completely random, but it feels like Because you said, if you have a concentrated portfolio in a certain space, whatever it may be, as long as that space is going well, there's not that much desire to change it, right? Um, And and that's just, you know, human nature. Uh, Have you found that when, you know, when markets are doing well, generally, it seems like some of the conversations are more tilted towards like, how can I optimize and improve performance? Whereas, you know, maybe there's more volatility in markets is how can I diversify better? It has the kind of, have the conversations changed a little bit because of, market volatility? Or is it, you know, kind of the same thing, regardless of how markets are doing your role as a portfolio strategist, remaining kind of the same?
2: Yeah, I think the conversations change. I think the conversations that I try and the questions I try to ask don't necessarily change. They're kind of more challenging. And I I would ask and kind of question any investor to take another look at your portfolio and say, what if I'm wrong? Because you're not going to be right about everything all the time. Nobody is. So it's about making sure that you're building a portfolio and taking on those positions in, in a way that allows for the possibility that you might get something wrong, maybe because new information becomes available, market dynamics shift or whatever that may be. Certainly last year, as you saw kind of market leadership change a couple of times throughout the year, I think that was a little bit of an early warning signal for people that you know really that long-term trend isn't necessarily going to be one direction all the time if you think about growth's outperformance of value, for instance. Market leadership changed a couple of times from a factor standpoint last year. And so you've got more people throughout the year saying, "Okay, I really do need to be thinking a little bit more about diversification, even though the general trend in markets was still up. Certainly this year, as you've seen, uh, of course, markets turn uh, negative. It has opened up conversations in, I think, a lot of people's eyes to making sure that you actually have that diversification, uh, have a little bit more exposure to maybe some parts of the market that have been neglected for in some cases, the better part of a decade, and really making sure that your portfolio is a little bit more built for all weather environments, rather than just saying, I expect things to be going well, I expect growth to continue to outperform. So the conversations from a diversification standpoint have definitely changed this year compared to the types of discussions we were having, certainly last year, but in particular, and before uh, 2021 really kicked off when that same trend had been running for so long. So
1: this actually leads, I think, right, well into our a question I'd written down to 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 actually start was that you know twenty twenty two has been this really tough year, like from a diversification standpoint, if I could say that it seems like a lot of asset classes that generally display very low or even negative correlations, for example, is like treasuries and like the equity market have correlated more strongly or they increase that anyways. Is that, has that been a, a big challenge? for, for, you know, just in the marketplace and, you know, were there any places to hide?
2: Like, is there anything that we could have done (laughs) or is just. Yeah. It's a, it's a great, it's a great question because the, the reality is, is, I mean, have there been places to hide slightly, but not really any big glaring opportunities early in the year, you could have owned energy. Uh, You could have owned in the bond space, uh, floating rate loans, for instance, certainly haven't seen the same kind of downside. Uh, through much of the year as the investment-grade bond or high yield bonds have. And in particular, just the credit market early in the year held up much better than what would traditionally be a lower risk asset in investment-grade government bonds or treasuries, for instance. So certainly the investment-grade space and and honestly just uh, yields in general moving so much higher as equity markets sold off obviously is what caused that correlation to to flip positive for much of 2022. And Certainly has created challenges for, I think, pretty well every investor. I think one different way to think about it is that still, if you were invested in the bond market in so far in 2022 through the first six or seven months of the year, your portfolio still hasn't been beat up quite as badly as if you'd been just an equity market investor. So while the performance hasn't been great and the correlations have been positive, You still, to some extent, have mitigated some losses just because it's typically a less volatile market and still has been this year. Just not quite that same level of diversification as you maybe would have hoped for out of a more traditional balanced portfolio. So certainly it's been tough for investors. I do think that the market environment is starting to change again as interest rate hikes are already being priced in by the market, the market commentary. And much that's said and written about the market is obviously starting to change from inflation concerns to growth and recession risk. And that's changed the way that that bond stock correlation has moved as well. I'm starting to get back in negative territory over the the last uh, few weeks, certainly through the second half of June and July. So it's really just all about trying to get a better understanding to some extent uh, about what you're trying to set your portfolio up for and making sure that you're insulated for the scenarios that you think are coming next. All, all, all great points. And like you said,
1: I think that the timing of, you know, rates going up and, you know, getting an equity sell off at the same time, obviously is not good. Now, it seems like you said in the last couple of weeks where you have seen, you know, you haven't seen like strength in equity markets by any means, but you've seen kind of like almost signs that there may be some type of bottom forming is that like the market is anticipating a slowdown now, whereas at the beginning of the year they were trying to price in a slowdown. So if we do see, you know, yields kind of topping out a little bit and and equity markets stabilizing, you'd see that relationship restored a little bit, right, which would be good for given a lot of investors are in that kind of like 60-40, you know, 50-50, you know, 70-30. But, you know, most investors will own some bonds um, to a certain extent. My next question, Cam, is, you know, what are some of the common changes that you've seen being made in portfolios this year or even more recently, we could say, You know, we're July 28th right now, just so I don't know when this episode is gonna come out exactly. So if we quote any any very timely stuff, just note that we're recording
2: on July 28th. But yeah, no, what are some of the, the things that you've seen changed in portfolios? Well, I think early this year, you saw a big shift in many portfolios becoming a little bit more credit oriented on the fixed income side. So a lot more high yield, some floating rate loans, investment grade corporate bonds, more exposure to potentially at times riskier parts of the fixed income market and an avoidance of any kind of fixed income assets that were more correlated with treasuries, mostly because it was the change in y- and move in yields that was causing a lot of the negative performance. There wasn't uh, a whole bunch of credit spread widening or anything along those lines early in the year. So that was a big shift uh, in the sense that, you know, in, in an environment where there's nowhere to hide, uh, you haven't had really a great opportunity for really dramatic outperformance. But to some extent, when you shift more of a portfolio to credit-focused fixed income, you're also increasing the volatility of that portfolio, increasing the risk of that portfolio as well, and in most environments. And so the challenge that we've seen now over the last six weeks or so as credit spreads have been widening more dramatically is that that shift that worked very well in the beginning of the year has reversed itself fairly dramatically as yields have been coming down at the same time. So really it's been the investment grade space where you've been seeing better returns more recently, not from a lot of those credit-oriented strategies. So it's really a question, I think, about how you wanna set your portfolio up for what's next. Because if you think, and you're of the mindset that you're not gonna see a severe recession, that you're gonna start to see, maybe already see spreads top out or or very close to it, and then start coming back down, then certainly, yes, go and, and add to credit make sure that you have some of that exposure in your portfolio. I would also argue in that situation, you probably want to own equities as well, and potentially owning equities over credit-focused fixed income. But if you're trying to weigh the the odds of a recession risk and trying to insulate your portfolio to some extent as well, you really need to make sure that you have some of those higher quality government bonds, investment-grade corporate bonds in the portfolio to make sure that you at least balance out the probabilities of recession risk versus economic recovery. Because the reality is, if you skip any kind of recession, you get right back into a recovery phase, you've probably got that equity portion of any balanced portfolio that's going to do very well and frankly, offset any losses if you do see yields rise back up again. Whereas you don't have really anywhere to hide unless you have that high quality government bond treasuries type exposure in your portfolio in a recessionary environment.
1: Those are all great points. And you, know, you mentioned the switch to Maybe adding more credit exposure because spreads were holding up so well, and you know, you know, default rates were fairly low and they stayed low. And I, I you know, anyways, the 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 word that we're getting from uh, from our fixed income team managing some of the ETFs that the, that we have here uh, is that you know they don't expect default rates to to blow up anytime soon, as most balance sheets look a lot better coming out of COVID refinances. You know, push the maturity wall back. So you know, albeit Q2 is a bit tougher, like you said, you know, definitely probably was worth it in Q1. Now it's time to look to the future and say, okay, you know, what are my expectations from an economic standpoint? Like if we're going into a recession, you know, maybe that's the time where you want to shift back to kind of the more duration focused type plays with, with treasuries and things like that. Did you notice also a shortening in duration in general? Like I know obviously like when you are, for example, adding credit, generally speaking, you will be lowering your, your overall sensitivity to rates. But is that also another theme that you've seen where it's like, even if you held, if like, say you need, or you want to hold government bonds in your portfolio for whatever the reason may be, like going from like an eight duration to like a four duration with like shorter government bonds. Is that something that you've seen also?
2: Yeah, I think shorter government and shorter corporate bonds as well. I think in general, everybody was just afraid of, of rate sensitivity. So shortening duration is the best way to reduce that. Obviously, as you said, If you're going and looking at the credit space, you're likely gonna be shortening your duration, reducing interest rate sensitivity relative to investment grade government and corporate bonds anyways. But certainly many, many portfolios that I've seen have been much shorter in nature through, especially the first quarter of the year. Starting to see duration widen out again in some portfolios as people have started to realize that you still need a little bit of that higher quality exposure to help cushion portfolios in, in many more uh, normalized market environments, if you want to think about it that way, that longer term trend that we've seen over the last 30, 40 years. So certainly that has been a bit of a challenge. And so looking at the investment grade space, not just from saying, OK, we're going to go and own only shorter duration assets, but also some of the more boring bonds that are made to help provide protection to some extent where you know you're reliably going to receive your coupon payments, you know that you're not going to see defaults from like the Canadian or US government, for instance, and making sure that you have some of that ballast in your portfolio is is, as some have started to lengthen out duration, I would still say, uh, for the most part, many portfolios that I've analyzed recently are still fairly short, and shorter than you would typically see out of investment grade bond indices that are out there. But Certainly, you're starting to see a little bit of a reversal as more and more investors have realized the challenges of just running kind of shorter term and more credit focused as well.
1: That's 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 great, and I I don't I don't mean to harp on fixed income because I know it's not necessarily the most exciting of subjects for everyone, but I think it's important that we talk about it because we're coming off of probably I think Q1 was the worst quarter since the 1980s, if I'm not if not, if I'm not wrong, I think like early 1980s, and we've had the worst 12 month total return in more than 25 years. So it begs the question is that we've seen anyways, from from our perspective, and you know, I guess the meetings that I've had with, with advisors, which aren't as much on portfolio construction, but just about, you know, which products to be looking at in, in, the, in the current environment, things like that, like, we're starting to get this vibe that bonds are maybe a better investment than most people think at this point, right? Like, obviously, if you've you had monster portfolios portfolio this year. It's been, it's been very tough. But like starting from today, where yields are, like where spreads are, which are kind of no man's land right now, I think are arguably right. Like high yield at 600 bips in the US is probably right in between, you know, I guess selling it or I guess, yeah, selling at 400 and buying at 800. But like in general, the market seems like we're in the top quartile from yield rank over the past 15 years for every single one of the sectors. Is that a vibe you're getting also where like, if you were a 60 40 and it went to 70 30 because of 2020 and 2021, now's maybe the time to start going back to a 64. Like, to say, like, you stretched your your parameters, if you will, or your risk barriers, is it time to reel it back in a little bit? And you're getting that, that feel from advisors?
2: Yeah, I think that there's certainly greater opportunity now in the bond market than there has been for much of the last decade. You're seeing. Yields elevated um, on government bonds as well. So you're getting paid a little bit more to actually take on and own government bonds than you have been in the past. And then certainly you're seeing spreads uh, a little bit wider now than you've seen for obviously not during the the depths of the COVID drawdown, but uh, much of the period before that and since. So certainly, I think from a yield standpoint, it's far easier to find bonds and bond products that are yielding five, six, seven percent, even in the investment grade space. So still higher quality bond products that are gonna turn out a pretty strong, positive uh, return for you just through interest payments. And then with where spreads are now, if you have a long time horizon, then you're probably gonna at some point see tightening and there's gonna be capital gains opportunities in there as well. So I do think that you're probably looking at an environment where bonds put up a little bit more of a fight with equities in terms of total returns. And that's not an environment that we've been in for, for years and years. now. Certainly, when you take a step back and look at the full year, it's not going to look great. Uh, Likely, when we get to the end of this year, potentially looking at a market environment where you see investment-grade bonds providing back-to-back years of negative returns in 2021 and possibly in 2022, we haven't seen that really at any point in history in the last 40 or 50 years. But if you were an investor today and thinking, where do I want to reallocate some of my assets? If you're very risk-focused in your portfolio, risk-on, then I, I think it's absolutely prudent uh, to maybe take a bit of a step back and realize that you might be at a little bit more of a balancing act between stocks and bonds. And it's a little unclear at this stage, which actually is going to outperform the other over the next 12, 18 months. Great. Uh, all right. I was going to I
1: was gonna go for another fixed income question. I think we'll give it a break. We got to talk about equities. You know, obviously on the ETF side here, Fidelity, we do tend to focus on various investment factors or equity factors, given that the majority of our lineup is consistent of that, those types of products, you know, factors like high quality, low volatility, momentum, et cetera. But, you know, kind of those two big themes that everybody seems to bucket everything in is either value or growth. Right. And, and but we know that there's tons of stuff in between, but like you mentioned at the, at the beginning and in, in kind of that introduction part is, you know, preparing for
2: and expecting value to do better It's happened. Where do we stand now? So I think we're at a kind of interesting crossroads in the sense that if you're of the mindset that you're just looking at value versus growth, a lot of those companies that you probably considered growth oriented businesses or growth companies and growth stocks have honestly, because of the valuation shift, maybe now found themselves in more of the value bucket. So it's kind of interesting because we could talk about you know big names like Facebook or Microsoft and all the Fang names. And a few years ago, you would have said, "Oh, they're all the growthiest parts of the market or growthier parts of the market." And a lot of those stocks have been their valuations have been reset the most. And to some extent, they're starting to show up in a lot more value screens uh, than they have at any other point in time. So you are starting to see this change in dynamic. I personally think that it's really important to review your portfolio and make sure that you know the biases that you have right now. Because if you already own a lot of these names and you thought you had a growth focused portfolio, well, you probably don't anymore. And if you want that growth focused portfolio, you might need to think about other parts of the market. And at the other hand, if you don't own some of those names right now, if you don't have a little bit of value type exposure in your portfolio, You might have a bit of a gap there that you're not looking for as some of these businesses potentially can bounce back and start to recover. So I think it really depends on how you're invested and and how you expect the market to evolve. But certainly where we stand today, having seen a really strong outperformance of value for much of this year um, and those more traditional value oriented funds, for instance, Really leaves, I think, investors kind of questioning what comes next, and that's always the big question, of course. And if, if we had a crystal ball, that'd be fantastic. All we can do is kind of say what we expect to happen using history as a guide and trying to put a probability around different outcomes. All right, so so Suncor's
1: growth and Facebook's value now, right? Like we completely flip flopped it. I I, I kid, um, but no, that's. That's really interesting. And I think it, it kind of the same thing is that from, from our meetings is we would noticed like this huge, like this almost like disgust for value, right? Like nobody wanted to own value for so long because it, just, it wasn't working like since 20 other than 2016, in which you kind of had that like mini early cycle after kind of that those technical recessions we saw in 2015 due to commodity price collapses and things like that. It just value just wasn't something that wanted like advisors and investors wanted to talk about. It was almost like taboo. Uh, now it's it started working again and i think there's a lot uh of of you know people kind of getting ahead of that and positioning portfolios for it but at the same time there was also uh, a true belief which you know was a very uh realistic you know or, or very true reality if you will that like growth had been doing very well like why would they not continue to do well and then you get higher rates right and and, and then your valuations are just the higher valuation generally speaking should be more sensitive it's kind of like you know a duration almost if you will for equities um, so we have seen a reset there. And actually, just to support what you were kind of mentioning, um, the way uh, we look at our various factors, we we kind of look at a, a historical premium or discount relative to the broad market from a percentile standpoint and only looking at the price to earnings just to keep it simple. And, you know, high quality stocks, which are th- the way that way de- we define them is high return on invested capital, high free cash flow margin, stable earnings. So those types of businesses, which some of those like, you know, large cap tech names were definitely in those in that category. You know, they've gone from about like the 95th percentile of their historical valuation to start the year to about the 10th right now. So you've seen like a massive re-rating in some of these names to your point where, you know, they're almost they're attracted from a valuation perspective, also on top of what they're providing from an earnings quality standpoint. So really interesting change there. One other factor we don't talk a ton about, and we were actually chatting about this before we started, is you know the small cap factor or small cap bias. Small caps have been getting hit pretty hard on a relative basis to large caps, which is fairly typical, if you will, of like a mid-late cycle, almost I'd say late cycle phase of, uh, of the market or, or business cycle. What have you heard about that? Is, is that like a tilt that you see in some portfolios? Do you or is it maybe time to start looking at it a little again, or any comments on small caps in general, basically?
2: Yeah, I think to some extent, it always depends on your investment horizon whenever we're having any type of conversation. And uh, over long, long periods of time, small caps have historically outperformed large caps. So I think it does make sense for some people to say, rather than trying to time the small versus large cap discussion, just to include a sleeve of small or small to mid cap companies in portfolios, and just acknowledge that there's gonna be volatility to some extent because of, of the size factor, but then ultimately that it's gonna pay off. Uh, and there are different ways you can take on small mid cap exposure. You can go high octane, small and mid caps that are gonna be very, very economic and market sensitive. You can take a low volatility approach to smaller caps that helps smooth the ride out a little bit more throughout the cycle. Certainly if you're looking just tactically in short term, more shorter term oriented, You know, it depends on what you're expecting from the market. If you're seeing you know, and worried about a recession risk, Generally speaking, you'll see large caps out, outperform smaller caps um, during recessionary environments. You get that flight to safety. If you expect that maybe you skip that stage of the economic cycle to some extent, you avoided a recession, or if we get one, it's pretty shallow, then you get pretty quickly back into that early cycle recovery, then small caps historically outperform in early cycle environments. So again, it's all about that question of what you're trying to insulate your portfolio against and then position yourself for. Uh, in the shorter term, there are different scenarios. So I would say in general, I'd try to avoid just making a, a, an entire and complete call in a portfolio one way or another. You just want to be balanced. And for some people, that means trying to own lower volatility small caps right now so that even if you get that recessionary environment, you protect a little bit with the low tilt on top of it. And if you don't get that recessionary environment, that economic slowdown that typically affects and impacts smaller businesses and smaller companies more, then you still get some of that small cap exposure to start capturing upside on the other side of the cycle as well. So uh, there are definitely different ways to play it. And it's all about what you're really looking for. And again, just trying to make sure that your portfolio is positioned for the way you expect the market to play out while still asking yourself a little bit, well, what if I'm wrong? Do I have some kind of hedge in here too? Uh, That's that's actually you, you might've created a new factor, small cap, low vol. Like it makes a
1: ton of sense when you think about it, right? Like the low vol will do well in the late, cycle recession, and then and your small caps are doing good in the early mid cycle. Heck, that seems like a pretty good portfolio for the long term. Uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, and I have to say, you know, I wouldn't take credit for inventing any kind of uh, factor combination, because there's certainly active mandates out there that invest in small caps in lower, lower volatility ways. So uh, and try to provide that smoother ride through the small cap space. So again, certainly different ways that you can approach uh, different different factors. And I've had lots of conversations with people even recently talking about how they want to own all these companies that have high free cash flows. Uh, and then you kind of take a look at their portfolios and, and they haven't thought about quality at all as a factor. And they don't have a much exposure there where realistically, if you're, you're saying, oh, I want all these businesses with really high free cash flow yields and that are generating so much cash flow right now, you kind of expect them to have that quality tilt. And at times you don't because you're looking at different parts of the market that might be a little bit growthier, or maybe kind of deeper value. And as a result, you kind of miss that, that middle ground that sometimes quality gets thought of as. And so really, that that's one of the reasons why as so you're looking at that late cycle environment, if you say that those are the types of businesses I want to own, those are really just higher quality businesses that typically will s- score better from a high f- uh, quality factor standpoint as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And anyways, like, like we were saying earlier, is also like
1: that, that's one metric, like free cash flow, the free cash flow margin can be quite volatile, like just consider energy, like exploration and production, like subsector, like ton of free cash flow right now, didn't have much free cash flow two years ago. But the quality businesses are the ones that have stable free cash flow margins, right? Like you want to be able to generate free cash flow year in, year out, quarter in and quarter out. And regardless of where we are in the cycle, which is, I I, I honestly, this is, that's a factor we've been talking quite a bit about in uh, an environment, especially an inflationary environment, in which a lot of companies who have le- or I guess less flexibility with their pricing power, with their you know, supply chain will likely be more sensitive uh, when we see kind of the ramifications of higher inflation for like 12, 18 months. The, we're, we're expecting somewhat of a margin compression and quality could be a, a good place to, to go for that. Cam, we're already at 32 minutes. I got one last question for you. What would you say is the number one risk going forward for most portfolios? Like what is the kind of elephant in the room, if you will?
2: Well, I think it's North American recession risk. And I say that because I think in particular, most portfolios, especially with all of the geopolitical events that have occurred in China, emerging markets, in Europe with Russia and Ukraine this year, more and more investors have been flocking and coming back home to Canada and the US on the equity side of their portfolios. And to some extent, understandably so. You feel more comfortable in markets and investing in businesses that you're more familiar with, you you know, you hear about more often. The challenge that you run is that you get the Canadian and U.S. markets uh, and economically tied together pretty severely. And right now they're on the same path for monetary policy tightening. They have been so far, at, at least. And ultimately, if you get a recession in Canada and the U.S., then you're probably going to see a more significant market impact in, in those two markets than you might in some other markets around the world that are just at different stages of the economic cycle. If you see a continued reopening and economic growth in in China coming out of their their kind of growth recession, as we would refer to it, or uh, Global Asset Allocation Research Team typically would refer to it, then you actually might see those economies in the Asia Pacific region, both emerging markets and developed markets that are more tied economically to China, that have an opportunity to generate stronger returns than you see in North American markets if you get that kind of recession. And that's not something that I'm seeing a lot of exposure to right now in portfolios. So, that to me would be a main risk. And of course, uh, tied to the slightly increased allocations we've seen to, to credit and shorter duration, not necessarily the best setup for most recessionary environments. So, to me, it's more about just diversification. If you're concerned a little bit about the positioning that you have right now about recession risk, Just ask yourself if there are assets out there that you could get a little bit more exposure to in your portfolios than maybe you have today, even if it's not your base case, but to start to try to protect yourself a little bit just in case you're wrong. What a great answer. I was gonna add something and I don't
1: want to. That was great. Thank you, Cam, for joining us once again. Very happy to have you on. Enjoy your vacation. This is your, I think, one of the last duties you have to do, so we'll let you go. Thanks, Cam. Thank you, everybody, for listening in. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity ETF Exchange, powered by Fidelity Connects. Don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave a five-star rating or review. Thanks again. See you next time.